Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Trico actually said at best when he was on stage, he was going to say, look, it was actually probably the best dressing room he'd been in that two years. He just said, it was so enjoyable coming in every day. Like you nearly, like the change room, like you were laughing like every day going in there. But it was also like obviously really hard work and like a really talented bunch as well. Should Eddie Jones be sacked and will Eddie Jones be sacked? Those are two very different questions. And, and, and <laughs> thank, you, thank you for easing me in. When you apply any rational logic about results over a period of time, yes, he should be. A very exciting November is in the rearview mirror. And now we turn our attention back to the club game and to what will be a very busy few months for the Irish provinces. We have a big derby clash between Leinster and Ulster to look forward to this weekend. While Munster face what is almost a must-win game in Edinburgh on Friday night. Welcome to the left wing. Will Slattery here with you. We'll be joined by Chris Foy of the UK Daily Mail in part two of the show to discuss all the latest with England and Eddie Jones. But first, I'm glad to be joined by Luke Fitzgerald and Keen Tracy to chat all the latest in the club game. But Luke, first things first, there was a kind of a special moment for you and your former Leinster teammates, the RDS over the weekend, a reunion for the back-to-back Heineken Cup winning teams of 2011 and 2012. Joe Schmidt even making an appearance. How did you get on? Yeah, it was great fun, actually. Really good to see everyone. Um... And hear what everyone's up to. So, uh, yeah, really good bunch of lads. Uh, a lot of fun. I was just saying there, like, I just had a headache. And I was laughing so much. Um, you know, it was some some real characters in there. And I think the guys on stage, I think it was Drico actually said it best when he was on stage. He was kind of saying, look, I, it was actually probably the best dressing room he'd been in that two years. He just said that, um, you know, it was, uh, it was so enjoyable coming in every day. Like, you nearly, like, the change room, like, you were laughing like every day going in there but it was also like obviously really hard work and like a really talented bunch as well you know you think of all the lions that were even in those teams that was kind of said once or you know once or twice there from a few people outside and i had never really considered it you know so it's very talented bunch and very you know good good workers too and um it was a lot of fun catching up the bit the bits i remember anyway well it was it was uh we had a great night so um yeah it was really good good fun was joe schmidt giving much away about his time with the all blacks as far didn't get to talking to him too much about that. Um, we had a nice cordial little hello. Um, I'm not sure. I'm 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 still over that uh, that Devin Toner uh, comment that I made about uh, around the World Cup. I'm not sure it was. Uh, no, but we actually had a nice. It was actually nice because I was wondering was that going to be frosty, but it was. Uh, no, he was in great form, you know, and um, you know it was funny because uh, we were kind of talking about him all night. Like he was actually. Um, like he was obviously really tough to work under, but he was brilliant too. Like he really brought the team on, and um, you know, you always felt for particularly that period anyway that um, you know you had an edge in the coach's box. That was always a nice feeling. You knew you. It's, it's really hard to gauge, obviously, but we just felt like we all like we had a great bunch of players, obviously. But leaving that aside, we always felt like he you know, he'd outthought the opposite coach. Like if you if you executed like eighty to ninety percent of the game plan, even eighty percent, like you were 
nearly guaranteed a win. Like he was just, it felt like we were way ahead off the pitch, which is a really nice feeling. I remember talking to some of the, won't name the names, but some senior Munster players in Irish camp. And we were kind of talking about it before. I think he hadn't been announced, but it was kind of a couple of years in and they were kind of saying, geez, like we seem to have gone to another level. And I was saying, look, your man is, like we kind of went through a few things that he was doing. Like they were like asking about, you know, what's it like? And, um, they kind of couldn't really believe it. They were like, Jesus, that's it. Like, you know, they, they were saying, Jesus, there's no wonder we never had a chance. Like it was, I think it was just before he was coming in to coach Ireland. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was great to see them all good to see him too in good form. Um, and it was really nice. We had a nice, we were in the fan zone as well, which was, which was really good. Leinster do a really good job of that. Um, so nice to chat to lots of supporters, did lots of, they're all, they're feel good nights, you're not going to wait because everyone's happy to see everyone and the, the supporters are kind of happy to see as well. And, the old faces are still there. Even some of the Blazers are still there. So that was always nice uh, to, to see a few of them. Good characters there. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun, Will. Yeah, I must say it was a blast in the past to see those old trophies as well. I missed the old Heineken Cup trophy. I, I Actually, the new Champions Cup trophy, I like it as well. But the old kind of European kind of map on the trophy, I know it always give, makes me kind of nostalgic for the, the glory days of the, of the Heineken Cup. But uh, We didn't bring it out. The last time it was out with us, there was, it was dumped over a few people's heads. So I was happy to see that remain in the uh, in Leinster HQ and not be in the, uh, in, in the pub with us. <laughs> yeah. A few people drowned on that night out. <laughs> probably just as well. Uh, moving back to... On pitch matters, Keen. Back into the club block now. A really exciting ten weeks between now and the Six Nations. Loads of European games to come. Interpro derbies, as I mentioned, Leinster Ulster this weekend. Which of the four provinces are you kind of most intrigued to see how to hit the ground running, or any kind of talking points in particular catching your eye about a particular team? Uh, I think they're all actually fast. Have fascinating fixtures coming up. Will to be honest, um, like I loved it this time of the year. I know I'm still not a fan of the the format of the Champions Cup, but that's that's another story. But like you look at the games that the provinces have coming up, like Munster Toulouse, uh Leinster going over to Racing. I know it's not in Paris, it's in La Harve, and Ulster playing La Rochelle. Like there's they're really, really meaty games to get stuck into. So um I'm fascinated to see to see how all of them get on. I think the gate the, these two weeks um I think are good lead up games into that. I think Munster and Connacht last weekend was a good hit out for for both sides. I know Connacht are obviously going into the Challenge Cup. They'll they won't be too happy with that, but that's kind of on the back of last season. And then you look at Leinster Ulster this weekend like that is an ideal stepping stone you'd imagine for both teams going into Europe as well. So um I think there's plenty to to be excited about, uh, like I said, even though the format is still a bit of a pain to hold, isn't it? Yeah, Luke, the Leinster-Ulster game is an interesting one. They played earlier in the season. Leinster got a, kind of an important win up in Kingspan on a miserable night. Ulster's attacking game in that weather. Maybe a little ill-advised at times. And I'm just looking at it. It's a, kind of a big game for Ulster for a few guys as well, like, say, Jacob Stockdale, James Hume, guys who didn't really feature in November and when they played in that A game, you know, didn't have great games. This is a huge opportunity for them to kind of get back in the shop window. Yeah, it is. And it's nice to see a little bit of a settled feel. I mean, there was lots of people who, you know, that went on that Ireland tour to, to kind of South Africa, some of the young guns that we were kind of excited to see. And I think getting them back into, into the provincial setup, getting some kind of getting used to the combinations and the coaches back there, I think we'll get a real sense of where different guys are. And, um, you know, probably a few guys, as you said, that probably need to make up a bit of ground in this period um, that are outside that kind of 25 or so people that we think are going to be, that make up the mainstay of that Irish squad. We probably solidified those positions to a certain extent. Um, 
you know, uh, not a lot of progress made in terms of people putting a hand up outside of that. But I think now is a good opportunity to do that. I think there's good games in the Champions Cup, a few Interpros to play as well between now and Six Nations. So um, plenty of rugby for them to, to go ahead and put the hand up. I think... Um, you know they'll have to you know, they'll have to play outstandingly well to to shift any of the bodies that are in that Irish team at the moment, um, but certainly a huge amount of potential. I think you know a disappointing showing in 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 November for them doesn't spell the end, and there's still going to be a lot of jostling for position before the World Cup will, which I think is probably in the back of everyone's mind. Even if Six Nations is probably at the forefront at this point, and obviously playing well for the province puts you in a good position to do that. So, um, looking forward to to seeing how everyone progresses. Hopefully, you know some some of our key guys, you know, kind of remain injury free. It's disappointing to see Henshaw out till till after Christmas, but I think. You know, we know what he gives you as well, and and I think he can slot back in. We're not worried about him, but that's you know he's he's a big player for Leinster. Um, but I'd like to see a couple of guys like I'd like to see Henderson get a good run of games now. I think that'd be important for Ireland. I think you think of what he brings to to, to that Irish bench or to the team if he starts. Kelleher as well for Leinster. They're guys that were kind of big players for Ireland. I think if you think of that South Africa match. They were on that bench. You know, would South Africa really dominated the end of that game as much when they brought on the, those guys from their bench? Will I don't think they would have. Um, other guys you'd be watching were Baird. I thought Baird had a brilliant start to the season. Very unlucky with that timing of the injury. Deeg was another man who did a good showing, and you'd like to see him maybe get a, you know an injury free run. Difficult to get in that Leinster back row, but still, there's a lot of guys I think will who could come in and make a big difference to that Irish team. Um, and uh, yeah, Crowley's probably another one down in Munster as well. So um, yeah, look, really excited to get back into this kind of period of rugby. And I think we'll hopefully have a few people putting the hands up. Yeah, Keen, like Leinster's centre kind of dilemma is an interesting one. Robbie Henshaw injured, like wrestling very strong in the centres. You mentioned they're playing in two weeks' time and Ulster are as well. You know, you could have McCluskey and Hume. You know, what way do you think they might go if Charlie Natoy's shoulder injury keeps him out? Obviously, you don't have to look too far back to November, the first match. You had Ringrose shifting to 12 and Jimmy O'Brien at 13. That would be a pairing I'd like to see, um, you know, given O'Brien's versatility. Do you think they might go that way or what, uh, what do you think? I, I think it's definitely an option, but I don't think it would be their preferred op- preferred backup option, if you want to put it like that, purely because I just think you're moving arguably, well, definitely one of the best 13s in the world out of his, you know, his best position. So, um, yeah, like, I mean, you know, when Leinster signed Charlie Nata, you were kind of thinking he'll do well to, to feature in the Champions Cup team because Henshaw and Ringers are so good, but you're like... Okay, you know, he's a he's a very, very good backup here. And I thought he was very good in the first half of the Glasgow game uh, last week. And then, of course, Murphy's Law strikes and, you know, he's out. And Kieran Frawley is obviously out as well. So it leaves him in a bit of a hole. I don't think the word from Leinster on Monday was that Charlie Natoy's injury isn't that serious. So um, you'd imagine even if there was a doubt, he might sit out this weekend, but he'd be possibly back for racing. But to answer your question, I think... I think they'll maybe this weekend we'll go with Jamie Osborne at 12 actually um, with maybe Gary Ringrose uh, outside him and if not Gary Ringrose then Jimmy O'Brien at 13 I think Osborne is a really interesting player still very young but he's a guy who can play all across the back line he did well last week again at fullback hasn't played too much there but he's a guy who's very very highly rated in Leinster um, he went on the Emerging Ireland Tour did well there as well and he's a guy he's a big big guy for, for such a young young fella so I think he would be the one they'd be looking at Will to, to go into 12 now whether they would you know, trust him in a Champions Cup game against Racing is a different story. But in saying that, like you said there, Stuart McCloskey is going to be back in the Ulster team this week and himself and Hume have been such a key reason why Ulster have been so good over the last couple of 
season. So if Jamie Osborne was to start this week at 12, uh, which is a real possibility, I think, and if he goes well, then maybe he might keep the 12 jersey against Racing as big a step that, that would be because I don't think Leinster have been afraid to trust it. They're young guys. We've seen that over the last couple of years. And when you're putting in a young guy alongside someone like Gary Ringrose, I think there's massive kind of insurance there, really. But yeah, definitely the, there would be an option, I think, to play um, Jimmy O'Brien in there as well. But I would just be personally reluctant to move Gary Ringrose into 12 unless your hand was really forced. Yeah, certainly would be one of the interesting selection talking points. Luke, you know, I know you were... We mentioned there you were at the Glasgow game at the weekend, you know, with the, your former teammates. Keen, I know you were there as well, covering the match. Like, it, it was such a straightforward win. It kind of just got me thinking, like, those victories for Leinster, and they're, they're so easy and they're so dominant. I just actually think it almost does more harm than good to to the squad. Obviously, racking up points is important, and I, I don't mean it from that regard. But just in terms of later in the year, I think it might give sometimes like an inflated kind of you might think certain young players are maybe further along in the schedule than they are when they're racking up such easy victories and it might make the team a little susceptible later in the campaign when, when the, the the heat turns up. Am I overthinking that? No, I don't think so. No, I think you're right. Um, but look, I think there's plenty left in the... There's plenty more games for them to... Like, there's tougher games for them. Like, all the Interpros are always tough games, I think. Um, you know, even if sometimes Leinster kind of, you know, had a very good record the last number of years in them they're still really tough games and they are still a good indication of where you are so there's a few of them left will i think those south africa games there's plenty of competition in those games and um you know that'll certainly set a few younger guys straight if they're not uh, on, on the ball there provided that of course they get the opportunities against those teams if the frontliners aren't back with the reduced amount of games in the league so uh i i would have been more concerned about that in the past will i think less so now with the south african teams i think that gives you enough um to really figure out where you are uh, in terms of your development. So um, was a viable thing, probably not so much at the moment. I think the league's in a better better place in terms of competitiveness. Yeah, what's your view on that, Keen? You were there as well. Yeah, I think that's the age-old, you know, kind of fear you'd have with Leinster. But I would totally agree with Luke. I don't. I wouldn't be as concerned uh, with the South African teams in there. But, you know, the irony was, what the, like Leinster pumped Glasgow, but they weren't very good. And this is something Stuart Lancaster was talking about on Monday, that the... The review, by all accounts, was very, very harsh. Um, like even if you look through the stats, the stats are mad. Like I think Leinster conceded something like fifteen penalties um, for a game that they won comfortably. You know, th- their standards are such that any time they let them slip internally, you know, they get told about it behind the scenes. And it sounds like that that's what happened this week again. So even though they won well, will. I just don't think the coaches will allow them to get away with certain sloppy aspects. Um, like Glasgow, you know, the start of the second half, Ronan Keller gets sinbinned and they look like, you know, for about five minutes of mounting, you know, somewhat of a comeback. And then Leinster rolled off the bench and I thought the bench were actually very, very good for Leinster. Uh, Baird, Jenkins came off the bench and made it a big difference. But yeah, like you'd always be, you know, it, it doesn't do much for the, you know, young guys trying to impress and stuff. Like someone like Rob Russell runs in a hat-trick, but you kind of wonder when it comes to the crunch how much stock the coaches will put in that because of the standard of opposition they're playing. But in the grander scheme of things, I wouldn't be as concerned as I would have been in the past, I have to say, because like Luke said, there are enough kind of tough games in it. No more than what there'll be this weekend, but I think you'll probably see a good few changes in the Leinster team this weekend, Um, even if it's not the 
full 15 that's going to start against Racing. I think you'll see most of those guys come back in. It sounds like Johnny Sexton won't play this weekend. They're going to keep him on ice for another week. So you imagine Ross Byrne will play. Josh van der Fleer will come back in. Um, so they might keep one or two guys. I think Ronan Keller will probably start again. You might see Dan Sheehan on the bench and then starting next week. So these are all, you know, good headaches to have, I think. But it was interesting to hear Lancaster say that the review, even though they won so well, was was actually very tough. Yeah, well, you kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of what point I was trying to make is that the game this weekend, you'd expect to see close to a full team. I'm just kind of thinking more of some of the players, the Leinster players who have been fringe guys who we thought were really good, who went to other provinces over the last maybe year, two years, and haven't really hit anywhere near the same heights. And I'm just kind of drawing maybe a, a conclusion. Is it because they they play into the dominant team and like a Glasgow game at the weekend where they look really, really good because they're absolutely annihilating you know, another URC team. And then if they go to another province where they don't have quite as dominant team around them, are they as good? You know, I agree, I agree with you. I agree with you. Could that I agree mean something about the coaching staff? Could that, could that mean something about, could that mean it could that mean there's a difference in the Leinster coaching staff if we have a lot of guys and I would agree like if you look at it a lot of guys maybe haven't hit the heights in different clubs yet we always think maybe it's because there's a lot so many good Leinster players and and I think that's probably I probably lean on there, there as well is there a chance that it's better Leinster coaching as well like more cohesive units more organized better plays better training is there anything is there anything in that I'm interested in your opinions on that there definitely would be, I would say, but you're also surrounded by better players in Leinster. It, it has it's to be better players. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You're always going to, like a player, an average player is always going to look good in a good team when he's surrounded by guys, you know, making him look good. And I think there has been an element of that for sure, Will, since you've left. But like I made this point a, f- a few weeks ago with you guys in the early part of the season that I'm not convinced that Leinster's depth is, you know, probably as good as it has been I would say in previous seasons I think and I'm talking about kind of the younger guys breaking through who still have like plenty of time to to prove a point but there's definitely a few guys in there who I think need to step it up um a bit because it's similar enough to the point that Luke was making about the Ireland squad you still know what the Leinster 23 really is in terms of you know if everyone's fit and like the challenge is for guys not to be comfortable being a Leinster player, you know, picking up their paycheck at the end of the week and getting all the gear. Like, I think, you know, guys need to really be pushing this on. Um, And to be fair, I think they have kind of improved that over the last few games that they've played. I thought in the early part of the season, they had left their own standard slip. But um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's one worth watching. I'm not convinced that the depth of Leinster is, is as strong as it has been in previous years, to be honest. Yeah, well, we've we've kind of pointed out before that like they were reluctant to use their bench in that Champions mm. Cup final, which maybe indicates some lack of maybe depth or or faith in that depth. So it'll be interesting to see as as the kind of bigger tests come, what way that goes. Um, maybe to move on to Munster, Luke. You know they have a really big game away to Edinburgh this Friday night. Like Edinburgh, are probably one of the teams Munster will be hoping to pip to get into that top eight, given the slow start Munster have had to the season. You know what, what? It feels like it's been a positive couple of weeks. I, I really think that game in Porky Cueve against South Africa A could be kind of a galvanizing moment. Like you don't want to read too much into it. It was a friendly, but they, they you know, young players stepped up. There was a good atmosphere. There was a good connection between the supporters and the team. It felt like again. And I, I think that could be a, maybe a springboard potentially. I agree. I, like, I think it was really nice for, I'm sure it was really nice for the coaching staff to feel the love down in Cork as well. I was talking to a few people who were there, said it was a brilliant night, like the, you know, leaving aside the, the result, which was obviously brilliant too. Uh, and some of the performances, I think, 
there was a real feel-good factor. I think everyone with Cork was delighted to have a big fixture down there. There was a huge turnout, obviously packed out Porky Cueve. So um, that's a really good thing for for a team that's certainly in transition. So they, they know they have... They know their support there. I think the supporters now know that they can pull out a big win, even if, again, it was a bit of a scratch South African t- side. That's still a touring you know, side with, with some internationals in there. you know. So you've got to be very proud about that, and I think they can be really pleased, and I think that could be a springboard for them. Um, still, in my mind, it's some done, a lot to do, uh, and there's a bit of a journey to go on there. I think... Um, Think they're making the, they're, I think they're, they're, they're making the right, the right moves, though, and I think they've got some guys in I think will help. I think Fritz... Um, uh, Fritsch, I think, will be a good signing. I think he looks positive. Uh, you know, I like some of the ball handling bits. He's not your kind of typical South African in that way. I think he's looking to ball play a bit more, and I think he opens up the pitch for them a bit, which is nice. I think they need a bit of that combined with that forward, um, kind of forward orientated game plan that I think will still Munster should still be playing that to a certain extent, and you know, not to not you can't you know you can't regress to that and always, but I still think that should be a strength of their game, and I think they're. Their, their their driving play and their their playoff nine those kind of forward runners that's still a really strong part of the game from the very hard when they get a when they get momentum to you know particularly in your 22 i think Munster is still excellent at that kind of game plan that forward game plan so um they've think they've got the personnel to be good at that and i also think um you know they've a few bodies coming in as, as i mentioned um that could make a big difference to this team so um yeah, we wait and see on that. I think injuries are kind of important for this Munster team too. I think Zebo is a kind of important player for them. Earls is still an important player. Conway, all these guys. You want to see these guys have a, a you know a, a consistent run of form. Will so they do need a bit of luck on the injury front, which they haven't really. Let's if we're really honest, they haven't really had that luck. You look at Carberry again. You look at obviously Crowley is carrying a bit of a niggle, but it sounds like he might be okay. But even the Snyman thing, you know, there's they haven't had much luck in the last while with injuries. So I think if they get a bit of that. As you said, that could be, you know, the South Africa thing could be a springboard in terms of belief. Um, you know, the, the, the Munster team, uh, you know, they might be better than what we've been giving them credit for if they get a few of those bodies back. So um, I'm hoping that's the case because we want them to be strong. And I think we need them to be strong down there. Um, so, yeah, please God now, hopefully that 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 uh, that is a big lift. And that's a big win against Connacht, who they've kind of struggled against the last while, I think. Um, you know, they, they kind of kind of had their number. And I thought defensively, I thought they looked good against them as well. well that's important for Munster too. Um, I think they've been kind of leaky defensively. And I thought they actually held Connacht pretty well on the weekend for, for the most part. Because Connacht can't cut you apart if they play well. Yeah, Keen, just to get your opinion on something that probably should have asked you about this a few weeks ago, given that uh, Munster South Africa A game took place. I can't even remember. It, it felt like a, a, an age ago. But as Luke mentioned, it was a great occasion. And just as, as I know you're from Limerick yourself, but like, do you think there is more scope to bring big games to Cork, to Porky Cueve? It, it's such a big stadium. <laughs> There's such a That's good atmosphere. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Limerick people will tell you no, the Cork people will tell you absolutely. Um, yeah, like it, it was great, and like you know, ultimately the it's the bean counters and Munster will be looking at that and going, God, if we can fill out that for a big Heineken Cup game, then you know, naturally there'll be more coming in, more money coming in. So I don't see why not. I think you know, Toman Park is still the home, their home place, and they're generally very tough to beat there so uh it'll be interesting to see if they look at it going forward i think you were you were at the game will weren't you um yeah on the terrace yeah with the with all the corkonians no yeah. i thought it was a great atmosphere I, I i was a major fan of it i'd never been there for a ga Brilliant match well. stadium, will. is that your first time there first time there yeah it's so it was gorgeous isn't it it's yeah really I, think, nice. I think it has great potential for like i think yeah. leinster munster stevens day the following oh, season there yeah. could be an absolute you know, gold mine, as you say, for the bean counter scheme, but also I just think it would be great for the for Irish sport. I think there's a huge Munster fan base in Cork that 
you know, it, it's a good draw. It's to ask like kind of fans to go Cork Limerick like that's that's a tough drive like to pe- for people to make. I understand why maybe people are somewhat reluctant to do it sometimes because it, it's not an easy commute. But yeah, I just think I just came out of that thinking there's so much potential there. Obviously, as you mentioned, Tolmond is the home. It's the iconic venue. But I don't know. Is there more scope to do kind of to think outside the box and maybe get financially rewarded for it as well? Yeah, there could be. And it looked, I thought it like visually, it looked really good on TV. I wasn't at the game myself, but like it just looked like it's clearly an impressive stadium, but it looked great. Now, I did hear from some people who were at the game in terms of the fan experience in quotation marks. It wasn't the best in terms of like the screens were very small. Apparently, it was a nightmare getting out of there just in terms of where it was situated and stuff. So all these things are probably stuff that if they were looking to do it again, they'd have to take into take into consideration. But like to the point that you you made to Luke, I, I think there's no doubt that they've used this as a springboard. Um, it was a brilliant fixture to get. Like there was, it, look, the pressure was off to a certain extent. It was a bit of a free shot. Um, the South African A side were really poor. I think they lost as well to Bristol, didn't they? But you wouldn't take anything away from from Munster and the fact that a lot of young guys featured in the the game as well, and a lot of those young guys have been featuring all season, and that's something that I think Munster fans have been crying out to see. I, I you know, Luke hit the nail on the head that there's a lot done, but a lot more to do in terms of the game plan and younger players developing further, but. I said this like definitely all along through the Johan van Graan era that I think Munster fans would have been more patient with things if they had seen more evolution in terms of, you know, just a more rounded, more expansive game plan, as well as having the nitty gritty that goes with that, but also showing more faith in the younger players. I think fans would have had much more patience than they did. Now we're starting to see that the game plan is very much still a work in progress. But you're starting to see signs of what they're trying to do. Like I couldn't agree more with what the point Luke made. I think Antoine Frisch is making made a big difference uh, last week. We saw him on the Emerging Ireland tour as well. He definitely has something different. You that, that bit of French flair, maybe. But um, like a lot of talk, you know, when they signed Fekitoa, bringing two centers in. But Frisch could be, you know, an absolute gem of a signing. But more of the younger players are starting to play like you know Roman Salanoa like had a tough time of it at times in the scrum against Connacht you know Dennis Buckley did a, a good job but again I think Munster fans won't mind when they get see this guy being trusted more and you know that was a big game last weekend so all in all it was a massive win I I didn't think it was a great spectacle, but any time you get a bonus point win over an Interpro rival like that is that's not nothing to be turning your nose up at. So uh, it's another big, big game for them this weekend before they, you know, welcome Toulouse to to Toma Park. So they're still in a very, very difficult run of games, but they've built up a slight bit of momentum, and there's no doubt that the South African A game was a key part of that. I think the defense is big this weekend, will as well for them. I, I kind of mentioned against Connor, but that that's a real fast track over. It's obviously the the 4G or the 5, whatever it is, the 5G that Edinburgh play on, like it's it's rapid. I was over the game there last year and Connacht got absolutely chopped up there. Um, you know, so Munster need to be on. I think that was a good sign. I thought they were a bit more defensively stingy. That needs to be, you know, uh, you know, I, I think a marker for them that they just don't go below that kind of standard. And I think that's, you know, that's a really nice place for a team that can be, that is still trying to find their way. Um, 
you can rely on the defensive, but you can get that organized. That's that's heart and belief in, in, in each other and trust in each other and the coaching staff. And you don't have to be unbelievably technical to deliver on that big defensive performance. And that's really important against Mike Blair's Edinburgh. Um, you know, they can be really, really expansive and they've got some dangerous runners on that fast pitch. So um, big test from this weekend. I think I'd like to see them kick on a little bit. And, and a big performance would go a long way in my mind to saying, mm, you know what, this, this Munster team is tracking the right direction. Yeah, and with Darcy Graham and Emiliano Buffelli potentially starting for Edinburgh, like, as you mentioned, that'll be a real handful. And yeah, you know, not even the performance, but the result is key. Like Edinburgh, as I mentioned at the start of this discussion, they are probably going to be the, the team Munster can vying with, along with maybe one of the other South African sides for eight, seven spot in that table, given where Munster are coming from. So yeah, it's set up to be a belter. Keen, another thing that we probably should have discussed a few weeks ago, but with the international window, you know, hoovering up all the kind of the talking points, we didn't get to it. Was Andy Friend is moving on at the end of the season? I think we've all been, you know, quite complimentary of him over the years. Coming in after Kieran Keane, which was a difficult season for Connacht, he was a breath of fresh air. He's moving on. Like, what what is your sense of how they might go about replacing him? Is it just a case of Pete Wilkins, you know, kind of? he's already been named head coach for this season. Is is it just kind of him staying there as the lead man? Are they going to bring in someone above Pete Wilkins? What, what's your sense of what they might do? Yeah, like, first of all, you'd have to say, like, what a loss Andy Friend is is going to be. I think, you know, he'd made it clear in, in the statement that he released uh, a couple of weeks ago that when he signed his most recent contract extension that that was going to be his last. And to be honest, I think he stayed on for an extra couple of years in order, I guess, to smooth the transition um, for him from after him, but there's no doubt that he's left. Um, he's left brilliant foundations on which Connacht can build. You know, they've got the redeveloped stadium, redeveloped pitch now, and in the stadium to follow. So there's a lot of exciting things happening on Connacht, but you know, they've they've sort of slipped. They slipped back again last weekend. But in terms of what comes next, yeah, like I'd be very surprised if Pete Wilkins doesn't take over as head coach. I'd be surprised if they get someone in above him. I think they've been kind of grooming him for the last couple of years to do this it was no coincidence um that he went on the the new zealand tour as an extra assistant coach i think that was probably all part of getting him more experience in you know in a high in a high performance environment with a view probably to taking over the connacht job if he was to get the job and take over as from andy friend they would definitely need another coach and they it wouldn't be any harm i'd say to get someone in with a bit of experience obviously they have mossy lawler and collie tucker they're two good limerick men but they're pretty inexperienced you'd have to say at the top level even though they're doing they're doing okay so um yeah it'll, it'll be interesting to see i think the big thing for connacht is now from now until the end of the season like we saw this with munster last season we've seen it in you know so many times with different teams over the years that when a coach announces he's leaving in the early part of the season it, it there's a risk that it can just tail off and you know players are kind of not you know playing to the full full standards that they can and i think you know connacht needs to get things back on track um like quick they had two good wins or yeah two good wins before the break like against two welsh sides um but like they've got benetton at home this weekend which is no no easy game even though benetton are a little bit you know they're more difficult to beat at home so yeah i think there's a big onus on the players now and the coaches that are there to ensure that standards don't drop from from now until the end of the season i think you've seen a guy like bundiaki coming back is is big but you know their attack hasn't been firing on all cylinders you'd have to say for a while now actually Um it sounds like Mac hansen will be back against benetton this weekend which is obviously a boost but it seems like they've been trying to shore up so many different areas of their game that 
it's still a little bit in transition because they've got new voices in there. I know Mossy Lawler and Collie Tucker were there last season, but there was a bit of switching roles again during the summer, and it seems like guys are still getting used to what's been asked of them and what they're what they're supposed to be doing. So, um, yeah, like Andy Friend has done such a brilliant job. You would just hope that his final season isn't a bit of a damn squib because it's so important that Connacht get back into the Champions Cup. We mentioned it at the start. They're obviously in the Challenge Cup this year, like, but they need, like a club like that, they need to be in the, the Champions Cup. So it's a big, big season for him to get back into the, where they need to be with. Yeah, look, I'll give you the last word on it. You know, Andy Friend, as Keane mentioned, not only is he a big loss, but then his hope is that it's not kind of a destabilizing factor for the rest of the season. I don't know. I think he, it sounds like, I'd agree with everything Keane I thought thought it out there nice and logically and I think presented it well. I, I don't really have anything further to add in terms of the um you know the succession planning, it looks to me like that's when you when you mention when you put when you lay it out like that, it seems fairly obvious. And I think they've done a pretty good job. You, you know, I like that personnel. Um, you know, what I would say about Andy Friend, I think he's been really great for them. I think he's got a lovely personality. I think he deals well with the press. He seems calm, uh, in a place where, you know, you don't really have the resources. It's a difficult job. And I think at times, you know, we probably, because we probably come from a couple of years where Connacht have been very, very strong. We obviously, my my last year obviously saw them win a league. Um, our expectations are, are pretty high for them. And I think they've got some good players and they play a nice brand of rugby. You know, but really when you think about it in terms of the resources, there's going to be a periods in the season where they might lose one or two games and not play well. And I think maybe we panic a little bit I feel like he has never really done that. I think he's been a really calming influence there. You, you know, you mentioned like there's no way he wasn't involved in pushing some of that infrastructure in terms of the development of the of the sports grounds. He would have, I'm sure, had some input there, um, and probably was helpful in terms of getting things moving. And I think he's been helpful as well in connecting with the province. You know, you people seem to like him down there too. So. Um, yeah, he's been really positive for them. I think he'll be a loss, but I think it sounds like they have thought it out. It's not like he's leaving the place abruptly. Um, kind of a la Lamb, even though obviously Pat Lamb did a super job. Like he kind of just left a little bit abruptly, I would think. He's not. Uh, I don't think Friend has done that uh, from from what I can see from the outside. I think he seems to have thought it out. Wants the the the, cl- the club to do well clearly in the future. Doesn't want this just to be oh the Friend era and then whoever's next. I think he wants to see a bit of. Um, you know, um, you know, some some kind of carry on from his um, positive carry on, sorry, from his tenure there to the next coach and to see Connacht in a better place in the future. So that's very positive. I think it's reflective of his personality from what I can see from the outside. So well done to him. And hopefully the season, as you say, finishes out on a positive note for him. It'd be nice to see him finish well. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they go over the next few weeks and months. But for now, Keen, thanks so much for joining us. Cheers, lads. We're delighted to be joined once again by Chris Foy of the UK Daily Mail to discuss all the latest with England and Eddie Jones after an autumn campaign that saw England win just one of their four matches and heap a pile of pressure on Eddie Jones to see if he can even keep his job heading forward. Chris, a nice, easy two-part question maybe to start things off. Should Eddie Jones be sacked and will Eddie Jones be sacked? Those are two very different questions. And, and, and <laughs> thank, you, thank you for easing me in. When you apply any rational logic about results over a period of time, yes, he should be. He should be. He should be sacked. Like, and, and what I would say is his predecessor certainly would have been sacked if, if, if the same sort of uh, series of results had happened under Stuart Lancaster, he wouldn't have survived this long. There's just been a different mindset this time. So you lose six out of your 12 games in the calendar year, you lose three games out of five in two successive Six Nations, 
and are miles away from being challengers. You seem to be slipping down the world rankings and no sign of a team knitting together. They do need to change something. They do need regime change. Now, whether it happens is a totally different question because they have all been persuaded up until now that it's all about the World Cup and that the man in possession is the right man to get them ready for the World Cup, which seems to equate to, to hell with the rest of it. It's all about the big tournament next year. But that has been the argument so far. And so far, they've always had their due process, done their reviews, and come back with the answer, we're happy that they are heading towards that target in good shape. Whether it's different this time, we'll see. Yeah, Chris, could you give us an insight into the review process, just reading a bit about it before this chat? It seems to be this kind of anonymous panel of of experts, you know, former players and, and former coaches who we presume are esteemed in the English game, but no one appears to know who's actually reviewing Eddie Jones. Like, do you have any insight into that? Like, wh- who's doing the review and, and how the whole thing works? It seems very bizarre from the outside looking in. Other than the fact that Bill Sweeney's involved and Conor O'Shea's involved, we do not have a clue who the rest of the people are. We have continually, continually badgered the RFU for the information. And we've been told that um, the people who have signed up, signed up on the condition of anonymity, because their argument was if they were known to be involved, it would impact on the process. Um, What it does mean, uh, and I think this is a serious point, is that I don't believe the English rugby public can be entirely confident in a process when they don't know who's manning the process. How can they have an absolute assurance that there is real rugby pedigree in there making big decisions if they don't know who's involved. But we can't have that information. We're not allowed. It's entirely sensitive. So uh, not a clue, sadly, and we will keep trying to find out. Yeah, it wouldn't be surprising if Eddie Jones himself was on the panel reviewing his own performance, maybe, given given how some of these reviews have gone. Luke, what, what do you make from the outside looking in? Obviously, you know, Ireland in a good place at the moment. England, under the Eddie Jones you know, tenure, have been the big rivals. We've had some very tough days against them. But now it seems to be kind of petering out. Like, do you think it's time for England to make a change? Yeah, I think they have to make it quickly as well. Um, you know, I think he hasn't been able to keep a coaching staff consistent underneath him. I think there's, you know, a fairly obvious reason for that. He's very combative, direct. Of course, look, there's no doubting his ability. Like, he has ability. But I think, you know, you probably have a shelf life. And I think it's probably not acceptable, I think, in my mind, to just write off, you know, uh, performances in between World Cups. I would always argue that I think um, coming into the year of a World Cup, consistency is really, really important. And I think generally speaking, most of the teams that do well, I think South Africa are probably the exception because there's so many players playing abroad. It's kind of a different thing when they get together for that long to prepare for a World Cup. They can kind of go up a a few gears versus a lot of other teams. Um, Personally speaking, I, I just think it's it's not good enough. You can't write off internationals. Um, you know, they're, they're called test matches for a reason. And you always want to be tested uh, in between big tournaments. And I just think he hasn't performed. And I think he's still, whether it's because of, you know, the coaching, the coaching staff thing where, you know, he hasn't been able to get any kind of consistency there or people being able to hang around long enough uh, and deal with him, it seems. Um, but for whatever reason, he hasn't really figured out a way for this England team to play. I'm sure Will is probably bored thinking of, of hearing me say this, but I still think Farrell, and there's a bit of a legacy thing with Saracens, I think, as well. That was a, that had a massive impact in this England team. But let's not go back there. I still think Farrell is the best 10 that the, that the country has, and I think he suits the way England play. When I think of great England teams, I always think 
of kind of the English personality in some ways is that it's, you know, organized, you know, tough pack, good athletes, um, you know, good, solid skill sets. And I always think, um, you know, when they play within that and they have a really structured game plan, really organized game plan, I always think that's when England are at their best. And I think I love watching Marcus Smith play. He's really exciting. He's brilliant in the premiership. But I just think as an international player, I just think the, the the balance of the team would always, in my opinion, be better with Farrell. And I think he suits um, England a little bit more at this stage um, than I think Smith does. And that's just, a, you know, you can call me wrong on that one. And I won't argue which because I think, you know, too hard anyway, because I can see the quality of Smith. But I just don't think he suits the English mindset. And I think he doesn't really play into England's traditional strengths. Like if you look at South Africa, for example, they're under no illusions as to what their strengths are. Like, of course, they've got out, brilliant outside backs. But the real strength of that South African team is that pack. And they play to that. And they don't care if they're boring. And, and I sometimes think that England have maybe gone away from that at times. Um, I always think England, when you saw great England teams, and we think back to that World Cup team, what was the foundation? It was brilliant forward play, brilliant kicking. But of course, once you've done those things well for a period of time in a game and you build pressure, you build scoreboard pressure... That's when you can play. That's when you saw the Coens. That's when you saw the Lugers and the Jason Robinsons. That's when you saw the team open up. It was because they'd beaten you up. Um, and they were unbelievably disciplined for usually 40, 50, 60 minutes. And, and that is always how I think England should be playing. Uh, and that's maybe, call it an identity crisis, if you like. That's what I'm calling it anyway. Um, and, and I think that's probably where I sit on this one, Will. And I think it's probably time to move away from someone like Eddie Jones. I think... You'd always be worried because he's done some great stuff in the past and he clearly has quality and understands the game. But I just feel like if they don't do it now, they're kind of stuck with him. And I would be worried that he won't be able to keep this coaching staff happy until the World Cup. And there could be another departure after the Six Nations if it doesn't go well there. So that's my that's a lot of jumbled thoughts into one wheel, but that's where I think England are at, at the moment. And I they always have the quality because they've got the depth. They could always pull out a big performance at the World Cup. But this should England should never be one one like a like a going tournament to tournament in terms of World Cups. Like there's four years between them. They've too much quality, and the expectation is too high uh, for them to deliver in between. So um, they shouldn't be letting them off the hook. I think uh, would be my opinion. Chris, what about the the, the, the Smith Farrell axis? You know, obviously the best days under Eddie Jones came with the Ford Farrell axis. He's probably trying to maybe recreate that with a very exciting talent and Marcus Smith. What have you made of that? And like, and to Luke's point about maybe going with Farrell at, at out half, maybe bringing Henry Slade in alongside Manu Tuolagi in the centre going forward. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a growing sense. I mean, I would agree with it. And there's a growing sense among uh, a lot of other people, including guys who played 10 at international level, that Farrell, um, Smith and Farrell as the double act just isn't working. And frankly, at this at this juncture, there isn't really time to keep persisting and persisting and persisting in faint hope when the clock is ticking and it's getting closer to the one thing they actually seem to care about, which is the World Cup coming up on the horizon. Now, Marcus Smith is a brilliant player, but when you're telling him to stand almost back in the car park, he's that far behind the game line and hoofing the ball in the air, you're not playing the game that suits him. If you're going to set up that way and watch him kicking the ball straight to South Africans who run back, run it back past him to score at the weekend, you just think this is not him playing a game that suits him. If you're going to set up the way you're setting up like that, he's not the right person to play at 10. If you're going to let the guy have freedom, and we all understand it has to be earned and there's a process, but within reason, if you're going to let him play flat in the faces of the opposition and run at them, 
he's absolutely deadly and he can do anything, but it's not being set up to suit his strengths. If you're going to play the way England are trying to play, and to Luke's point about identity, at least be true to it and have a clear identity and stand by it and say, this is us, we're happy with this, we don't care what anyone else thinks, then Farrell is your 10, 100%. And then a Tuolangi or a strong carrier of some description is got, has got to be in the mix there too. And then Slade does come into the equation and he's had some bright moments in a, in a struggling side. He's shown some of the brighter moments during the autumn. So there's a different... There seems to be a need for a different balance. And and also that whole thing about identity is really important because Eddie Jones has consistently talked about the English traits. The English traits are strong set piece, strong defence, and, and a sort of physical intensity about all their work. Well, the set piece was in ruins on Saturday. Absolutely in ruins. And and this was the this was the England team that went to a World Cup final and and got dismantled in the scrum. They've spent three years trying to solve that problem. There's no sign of it being solved. They brought in the guy who oversaw the Springbok scrum and he's not got the beast. So he doesn't seem to have an ability to create that same situation, that same strength with England. So these are not problems that are being solved. And that is supposedly part of the identity. Yeah, Luke, in terms of the style of play, and Eddie Jones is saying that it'll take time to bet in and that it could bear fruit by the World Cup. And from the evidence we've seen at the moment, doesn't look like that'll be the case. But you look back maybe to the start of the Andy Farrell tenure with Ireland, and there was an 18-month period where we were kind of hearing similar things in the camp that Mike Cat was taking his time to work in the strategy, and we weren't really seeing any evidence. And then one day, it kind of blossomed against England at the Aviva, and from then on, Ireland haven't really looked back. Do you, do you think that's a possibility with England in that could have come good all of a sudden because it didn't look very likely with Ireland, you know, up to that point. Yeah, I get that. I think, um, you know, I think Ireland probably have different, Ireland have different personnel in their pack than England and they have different issues to resolve. And I think Ireland probably had to get comfortable playing that game plan because Ireland are never really going to be able to, they're not going to be able to beat up the likes of a France generally in England or generally in South Africa. And that's a big problem for this Irish team. You see this with Leinster as well because it's very similar personnel. Um, so I think Ireland probably have to play that game plan. I think New Zealand will always recognise that because they're playing against South Africa all the time. If they want to be successful, you've got to be able to ball play and you've got to commit to that game plan. And I think Ireland have quite similar personnel to New Zealand. And I think New, Ze- New Zealand are probably, Ireland and New Zealand are probably two of the most similar teams in terms of style at the moment. I think Ireland play a very, very expansive game plan. They don't have the, the firepower outside that New Zealand have. But in the pack, I think we might actually be better ball players at this point. Just at this point in time, I think, um, and that's probably where you see. I think that's where you see the, the the teams are quite close together. England are always, in my mind, in that other cohort. Of course, they've got skill and and, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying they don't have those things. But to what Chris was saying, that set piece strength. I think that physicality that you always saw. You know those brilliant England performances. Where the, the bedrock oftentimes is a brilliant defense as well. I hadn't even con- contemplated that because I'm kind of focused on this attacking issue that they have. But they're all things that England can still get right, Will. I think they could still get those things right with the World Cup. Of course, they could turn it around. You think of the quality that they have there. The issue is that we just haven't seen enough kind of green shoots for us to really say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's trust this guy to, to get us there. And I think it comes back to that point that which concerns me the most is that it's the staff turnover thing. Like that makes it really hard to, to deliver on a game plan consistently. Will the messages will be changing all the time. The personnel are changing because they like different players, um, you know, for different game plans. So it causes lots of issues. And, and that's a, that's a really serious thing to not be able to keep the coaching staff with you. If you're that good, 
generally people don't want to leave. So uh, I, I, that, that, that concerns me with, with, with Eddie Jones. And I think if you're talking about, you know, the if, if for kind of looking at this about the, the law of averages, like, you know, you, you just want to see consistency, you know, and, and we just haven't seen that with this England team yet. And that, that, that means that, you know, he's working off a one-off where really you can say, well, you know, I want to be working off a body of work. It's like, you know what? Look, Eddie Jones, he's had a blip here in in, uh, in November. But, you know, we know he's done two or three years here of brilliant work before this. So we know that's there. We we know we can refer to that. Um, and we've got some stability with the coaches. You can't say any of those things with him. And that'll be my big concern here. As I said before, you're caveat and you're always worried about saying, oh, well, look, let's get rid of this guy now. Because you know the quality's there. You know he's a good coach too. But for whatever reason, at this point in his career, I just don't think the fit is right. And that's my concern is that I think if you were thinking about this logically, you would say, I'd much rather have some evidence to support Eddie Jones' statement. At this point, we can't say that. Um, and look, I, I, to, to the Marcus Smith point, because I feel like it's pretty harsh to be saying, that, to, to put this on his shoulders. Either way, I think you have to either have him at 10 or you have to have uh, Farrell at 10. That doesn't mean you, know, you, can, you, can, you, know, you can have an interchange there or whatever you like. Um, but you know you have to... Uh, my preference is with Farrell because I think he's a better goal kicker and he's kind of a big game player. And I think defensively, to Chris's point, I, wanted, I did want to say this when you mentioned the defensive part. Farrell... And you've heard me say this, Will. He is a brilliant, brilliant defender at 10 uh, versus you know competitors. He's a big guy. He's physical in that position for a 10. For a 12, he is not a physical, physical uh, defender. He's not. He's average. And he doesn't stick the tackles like a real, like a, like a 12. Um, and that's a big issue for, for England because they should be really solid. If you move him straight in there at 10, you've got Slade or you've got two laggy. All of a sudden, like, where are you getting your easy yards there? Nowhere, I don't think. And that really bolsters that England team from that perspective. Now, that's not sexy to say. It's not going to be what, you know, getting supporters on their feet. But what it does do is it makes them really, really difficult to break down. You get an extra couple of penalties there. There's there's moments for them to, to, to work off defensively there where uh, they don't have that with Smith. I think you're managing Smith at this level to a certain extent. He, of course, he's got heart and he gets stuck in, but he's just a small guy at this level. And that does tell on the big stages. And, and that's what happened to them against uh, South Africa in the final. They made that mistake of picking that Ford and Farrell axis and they weren't physical in there. They didn't need to be against New Zealand because New Zealand aren't going to pummel you really for, for 80 minutes, where South Africa... That's that's all they're going to do, and they're going to put the ball in the air once they get the little bit. They're going to put the pressure on you. New Zealand just they, they can't play any other way than that expansive game plan. They're really physical, but the ball is going to the spaces, and um, so you can kind of get away with having less physical teams and uh, less physical kind of tens and twelves sometimes against them. So that's a uh, that's just what I think on that one. Will I think they they need to. I'd be cutting ties pretty quickly with him here and uh, and, and getting someone because this is a brilliant job. They'll be able to get someone brilliant in uh, pretty quickly. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I'm a little bit worried about them from, from their own perspective because we need a strong England. Like, I want to see England, uh, you know, because that side of the draw, you know, they're in a great side of the draw. Like, they should be getting, you know, going deep in the competition. And, um, you know, I just think with the state of the, the, the club game over there at the moment, they, they need a lift. They need the, the, the national team playing well. Yeah, Chris, in terms of, like, who might come in or, or what the future holds, there's been reports that there's a three-person shortlist of Steve Bortwick, Scott Robertson, Ron O'Gar, obviously, we're very interested over here in the Ron O'Gar potential or, or, or that kind of side of it. What's your read on, on that? You know, who might succeed him? And, you know, if it does happen now, like are those three candidates still the three kind of live options or what's your sense of it? Yeah, we, we were literally just talking about this a couple of us today about this. It's such a live situation that up until the weekend, this wasn't seen as any discussion about the short term. This was seen as a succession planning question for November next year. 
Now, those three candidates, Scott Robertson, Steve Borthwick, Ronan Agara, they've all got different strengths and real quality. And the RFU seem to be, for once, getting their act together relatively early and conducting interviews, having discussions, you know, really sort of putting in a plan. But all of a sudden, if you have to accelerate that, I think my view on it is that if you are seeing those three guys, one of those three as the ones to take you forward and they are the real pedigree candidates you have in mind, you shouldn't suddenly water that down as a short-term fix, that you should actually look at it in the same way. The RFU should be looking at it and thinking if they are going to oversee urgent regime change now, they shouldn't just shove someone in there in a bit of a crude caretaker way just to get by because in the end, you know, there's a there's a crisis situation now. They need to improve their standing in the Six Nations again, and then they need to get their act together and try and have a meaningful attempt at a decent World Cup campaign. So per, my personal point of view would be you still go through the process of judging those three candidates. You just got to get a move on. Um, now, there's a bit of talk about the fact that there is another person sort of uh, in the mix here in terms of, uh, Wales might be going through a similar process too, and Warren Gatlin's been mentioned. And if you're Warren Gatlin, you might now be sitting there thinking, look at this scenario. All of a sudden, Wales and potentially England are going to go through a, a bit of a turbulent time and need a, a, a proven figure to come in and do a job, potentially as a sort of 10-month contract to go through to a World Cup. And if you're in his position, you'd think I would sort of fit the bill perfectly to come in as someone who is seen as having that long-standing ability to get hold of a team and turn them around quickly. Now, I can sort of see some merit in that. But as it stands, I don't think there is any awareness of what the RFU are doing here because they're still trying to work out if they're actually going to keep their current head coach. But if they did change it, my personal view would be decide on one of the three you've got in mind already and push on with that. Now, I think I think there's a feeling that Steve Borthwick's probably been the front runner for some time. Behind the scenes, a lot of people who know what's going on in the club game, who are connected with the national team and the RFU, there's been a lot of chat about Steve Borthwick it having his name on it already. And I think there's an impression behind the scenes in some quarters that it's it's already his job. But I think there is a lot of interest in Scott Robertson in particular. I would be honest and say I, I think the impression I have is that Ronan O'Gara is third on that list. But he's he's caught the attention with what he's done with La Rochelle. I don't think it's necessarily helpful to his cause the way the RFU see the world when you're getting a series of touchline bans and aggravating match officials. Um, that's probably something that they would consider. But Ronan O'Gara is a hugely impressive coach, um, a, a very driven, committed guy who has got a lot of notches on his CV already as a coach, You know, very quickly going around the world and building up experience. So he's an impressive candidate. So, but I, I, my, my impression at this stage is he's probably not the front runner. I, yeah. I think can I chime in on that one, Will. I think that's uh, re- like really interesting here, uh, Chris's opinion on that. But I, uh, you know, it's I, I think um, to my mind, Borthwick is the best fit. I think Robertson, you just would love to see a little bit more on the CV. Um, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, it is a different game. And I think if you were going for the World Cup, he's a bit more of a sea change. Um, and you kind of say, does he have enough time? Like he's a guy who probably does need a year to bed in like it'll be a very different game but if you look at the crusaders like they just play that there's a way they play 
could he adapt? Would he understand the kind of conditions? Would he understand like the skill set? Would he have enough time? Like a Joe Schmidt needed time to get people to understand the skill set that was required and to get the pictures in his head. To my mind, they're obviously different coaches, but it would be that kind of a change in the mindset and the skill set. And I feel like that might put them under pressure given that World Cup time. That, in my mind, is where you say, okay, well, who, who understands? Like, Gatlin has done it everywhere. He's he's achieved everything in the game from a coaching perspective. He, he You could fill that gap. But if Robertson was your preference, maybe you say, okay, that's that's probably an ideal scenario where he just hands over to, to Robertson after the World Cup. Now, would that appeal to Robertson when he says, well, there's a big cherry there. Why are you waiting? Um, I, I don't know. It, that's That would be, I think, if you were going to go down that route. And I think Raj, to a certain extent, would probably, the reason I'd say, I think he probably would want to change things a little bit, but he understands he understands Northern Hemisphere rugby, and he's got a you know he's got a, a sense of, of both sides of things. So he's probably a better fit than Robertson and Borthwick. But to my mind, Borthwick has to be the guy for the job because you know it's always nice to have someone who's you know looking at the Premiership week in week out, and I think he really suits the English mindset. He'd get it. He's obviously apparently brilliant on the detail on the line out set piece. You'd imagine, um, you know that would be a big focus for him. So. You know, do they go back to the big pillars of their game under him? Um, yeah, but I, I like Chris's thinking. It's interesting to hear Chris with the inside track, maybe, but it's interesting that they're there because I think that would suit them the best, Will. Yeah, because obviously, not only has he won the Premiership with Leicester, you know, a huge number of Leicester players have made England debuts in the last couple of years since he's come in. So he's obviously improved those guys and he spent time with Eddie Jones as an assistant. So he knows the international game as well. So yeah, I agree with both of you. He, on paper, he, as much as it would be kind of a huge talking point and very exciting to see if O'Gara went in and we talked about that last week as well with Rudd who wasn't as big a fan of it but uh, I think Portway probably makes uh, the most sense okay Chris just to maybe finish up with you and it's always great to get your insights on the English game so I think England's first Six Nations game is against Scotland I think will Eddie Jones be in the coach's box with England and if not who do you think will be it's a good question I would have said Two days ago, three days ago, I would have said yes, 100%, and, um, you know, open a shut case. Now, uh, there's just a mood around. There's just a sense of there's a bit going on. And and genuinely, there's nothing more than that at this stage, as in the, the process is underway, and it has not really taken its full direction yet. But there's just a lot of mood music. Like, I've spent all day talking to people. And just you just get a sense that there's something going on a bit more fundamental than there was previously. So it now wouldn't be quite such a shock to me if there was a change. If there was a change, um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. If there was a change, I would not, I would not be surprised at all to see them think, right, we need to buy ourselves time. Let's go and try and pinch Gatlin from under Wales. The, the noses of Wales, if they were thinking of doing that, because you know what you're going to get. He would fully understand the psyche and everything. It buys them a bit of time, potentially even bring him in and say to Borthwick, come in and get your feet under the table as well. I don't know. But certainly consider that as a holding position, which is one that would have some clout and some ability to gear up properly for a World Cup. And then the irony, the biggest irony of all this would be if, that forces Wales to take more drastic action. They bring in Scott Robertson till the World Cup. He does a good job. Then England go to him afterwards. I mean, that would be a great merry-go-round, <laughs> wouldn't it? So, I mean, the whole thing is it's, it's just live. It's up in the air. It's totally chaotic. And it feels like it's all happening in a hurry now. And trust me, all I'm going to be doing 
for the next period of time, probably 10 days, is endlessly chasing around to find out what's going on with this. It's just going to dominate our existence and we'll occasionally keep an eye on the Football World Cup while it's going on. <laughs> well, Chris, as always, great to get your insight. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Cheers. That's all we have time for the left wing this week. We'll be back next week with another podcast. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. This is an Irish independent podcast.